out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of Cathal Coughlin, one-time member of... Uh, Micro Disney and also the Fatima Mansions. He's done several or quite a lot of solo stuff, but has a new solo project and album coming out very soon. He's just released a single called The Owl in the Parlor. And uh, the album is going to be titled, he says, looking desperately down at his notes, it's the Song of Co. Ackland, which does feature such people as Luke Haynes, Audrey Riley, James Woodrow, John Fell, and many more. Um, the album is going to be coming out hopefully at the end of March 2021, and he's also got lots of other projects. Anyway, this is the interview, so um, after several minutes of casual chat, which we've edited that bit out, um, we get down to the lyrical content of the new single and the, uh, the single before, and this is Cattle's reply. Over to you. It was done in... Um, a lot of it was done in fits and starts over the last four years. Uh, but there was a sort of a big chunk of writing in the first half of 2019. Um, so it kind of began in 2016. And it was right after the Brexit referendum, I think. Right. And right before the... Um, Shami Chakrabarti's uh, report on the Labour Party and the reception, <laughs> the, uh, the delivery ceremony, which was a bit of a watershed for me. Um, so uh, the couple of tracks that have been released are, both, are they're in a slightly similar vein, and the, lyrically, and the rest of it kind of isn't. Um, in, in that vein so much, but there's a sort of, a, I suppose, dime store apocalypse kind of vibe, um, you know, parallax vision of uh, of crisis, I suppose you'd say. Yes. Well, I was just kind of, you know, it was just kind of curious because I know, you know, I was always very fascinated with David Bowie and I know he used his kind of this, the William Burroughs cut up quite a lot for his lyrics and sort of, you know, that famous bit of him with his big scissors cutting up, you mm. know, diaries and stuff like that. And I was just wondering if if you use those sort of techniques yourself at times or whether it's a, it's a totally different process. Because I know some people, you know, just talk about, you know, writing lots of ideas on napkins and then sort of over the years kind of getting all these things and kind of put a song together. And um, it's just kind of a curious idea, you know, how people bring you know the fruition of a song and and you know when you feel like it starts and then when one day you think that's it I've, I've got the lyrics here um so yeah I was just kind of curious especially the the owl in the parlor there was a classic line isn't there on the hunt for Hitler's bitcoin with my pal in Tennessee which was quite an interesting I have never come across that even slightly in any <laughs> other song in my life so I was just kind of thinking that's that's quite an interesting sort of vision or, or, or you know so I just wondered where, where did that um you know I mean without going through every Every line, um, but you know, just like wow, that's that's an interesting one. Um, you know, does the, is it the case there is a, a, a underlying narrative, or was it just ideas that kind of came together and and you sort of worked them worked them through into a song? Well, for all in the parlor, it's just straight up, you know, attack satire, uh, really. <laughs> 
of the uh, well to give you an example there's a place in the British countryside which I know rather well where there's an Americana festival each year and uh, Americana music festival and um, the they tend not to have a, a, you know, it's a pretty low budget community thing, you know, and I'm not slagging that off for a minute, but um, it has on one famous occasion been okay to, well, fly Stars and Stripes from various buildings in town. Okay, I get that. And various like state flags from the US, get that. The Confederate flag, <laughs> I do not get that. And, um, it seems that a lot of a lot of small towns have this kind of uh, will of their own, I suppose you'd you, you would say. And with the internet being such a great way of connecting to the horrors of the world, um, it's not necessarily bringing out the best in everybody. No, absolutely. So, um, I'm also, I've also been slightly fascinated by the custom of some people, some men have, of uh, keeping raptors as pets and displaying them, um, uh, you know, in at, at public events, as, as one might, you know, show off some brass rubbings or, 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 or a cute poodle or something like that. <laughs> Yes. So, uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So all in the Paris, very straight, straight ahead. But um, Song of Coaklan, yes, it does come from a bit of an experiment, uh, which was actually done initially by a friend of mine of running an old lyric of mine through um, successive layers of auto translating then back into English, um, which produced some interesting collisions and. Um, uh, made me want to keep some and manipulate manipulate most, actually. I mean, I couldn't see myself fully surrendering to the the vagaries of the caught-up in the way that, you know, to be honest, I don't think Bowie ever actually really did. Um, but he would sort of, in Cracked Actor anyway, I think he, yeah, it was an experiment, but I think he was just looking for things that he could build upon and I definitely identify more with that than with with the with the with the, the, the full bore borrows thing which I, I I mean I grew up with I've read all those um the books that are really just naked launch that <laughs> have, have other titles uh like the ticket that exploded and um uh Nova Express and sorry was it junkie as well was no what? no not not junkie junkie is what I would call one of his pulp books, really. Because, um, I mean, he was a great storyteller when he wanted to be, but, um, yeah, Junkie and Queer are both quite straight-ahead straight ahead storytelling things, but it's, yeah, The Soft Machine, Ticket that Exploded, Nova Express, or it seems to me, anyway. Yes, absolutely. Very large part of just Naked Lunch caught up, you know. Well, and... Yeah, there are interesting moments, but it is terribly dry. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's the sort of thing, to be honest, I really wanted to like and understand, and I didn't, so I gave up and stuck with Jack Kerouac's On the Road instead. And 
I kind of gave it that that's kind of you know because when you're young you want to sort of feel you know like you're, you're somehow on some sort of hip zeitgeist don't you Either oh way. yeah <laughs> and you're feeling terribly uh, self-conscious about you know seeing the right things and liking the right movies even if you never really watched them or understood them it's kind of it feels it, 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 you take it I've, I don't know I did probably spend far too much time pushing myself into things that I didn't particularly like and enjoy but just thought yes I've seen it I've vaguely read it I have no idea what it's about but I can now name drop in a conversation which is important really, when you're 18 so well there you go but then you know with with lyric writers and I've spoke to quite a few recent well, years um for a while. I mean, some people almost leave it to the last minute before they have that deadline. You obviously aren't one of those kind of songwriters who can just leave it to the last, you know, keep putting it off. Because, um, oh God, it was the guy, I think he was in the band called The Bluebells who did Young at Heart. And um, oh, yeah. I mean, he said that, um, I suppose he's, he's not day job, but he's, up, you know, he, he gets commissioned to write lyrics for other people and, and often will just kind of put it off to the day and then think, oh, I'll write them in the taxi and if I was sorry, I'll write it in the uh, the airport and it's like, oh, sorry, I still haven't done it. And then it's literally going into the studio with the artist that he's being commissioned to and then think, right, I better write the damn song now. Do you, you, and I thought, God, that's incredibly um, vaguely brave, but obviously he, it works for him. You, you obviously aren't one of those types who can just kind of have the deadline and then faff about, you know, cleaning the house up and then think, right, God, tomorrow I've got to go and do it. I think we all have an element of that in us. Um, definitely have. And with the best will in the world, there will always be like half a verse or a middle section or something that eludes you way after the point that's comfortable. Um, that, that, that bit in the middle of all in the parlor, the book of Hitler's Bitcoin, was very late to go in. That, that was like the day before I recorded it, or maybe it was the day I recorded it, <laughs> um, because it, it was just an instrumental interlude for a while. And I thought, well, I've got no problem with having instrumental interludes. It it seemed like a bit of a cop-out. So um, that just, you know, raucous kind of thing came to me. Um, so I put it in, but, I, I you know, I would... You, you, your, your basic... The answer to your, your your central question is yes. I mean, I do prefer to be as prepared as I can because I know that I can't depend on inspiration and desperation doesn't necessarily bring it to me. I, I would be, if you know, if somebody was using me to, 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 to write their lyrics, I'd be mortified to find myself in that situation. But I'm sure that chap is also, and it's just his particular just his particular way of doing it. I'm not making any value judgment about it, but uh, some people prefer to do their best work under those circumstances. I just don't think I'm one of them. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was quite interesting. But So is it because you've worked a lot with James Woodrow, haven't you, um, who's on yeah. guitar on this particular one? Is yeah. it the case that you start talking about what you're doing before the the lyric and the melody comes? Or, or do you start having some ideas that you sort of sort of exchange, you know, files and and sort of ideas um i i mostly work on my own um it's and that's not again it's not a values-based thing it's just a habit that i got into and according as i had to have had to do more things that weren't music in, in life the, the freedom to 
to, for example, spend a series of days with people just kind of knocking ideas around, just wasn't there for a great many years. So I've really got uh, set in the way of trying to trying to finish everything to some extent before I play it to people. Now, there are some really good things that can happen. Um, if the premeditated idea, for example, just isn't isn't gelling, you may go away and think, well, hang on a minute, what was the, you know, c can I see what the critical problem with my arrangement was? And that may just unlock something, uh, something about the way someone played it. May just completely upend your, your perception of what the arrangement should be, and then you you can go with that. And I mean, I've been quite lucky that way. Um, with this album, there was a little bit of that. Um, All in the Parlor was a bit more gentle. The way I, I did do it with the full band at the Kilkenny Arts Festival in Ireland in 2019, and it it hadn't quite found its feet. It wasn't quite uh, strident enough. Um, it's just one of those ideas that's neither, you know, you don't want to be too musical with it, really, because it's just not going to, it just doesn't have uh, any kind of plangent quality to it. Uh, you need to go for the jugular. So that was, that taught me something. Um, Still haven't done song for Coaquilin live, and that is going to be a bit of a challenge. Whenever, <laughs> whenever the opportunity does arise, um, that was completely kind of pieced together based on what I've been doing on the laptop, you know. Yes. Um, and other songs in the album fall more on the all in the parlour side of you know a bit of spontaneity and a bit of. Uh, just hearing how other people sound playing it, um, but I—I I mean, uh, um, collaboration isn't something I shy away from, and I do hope I'm going to have more of a chance to do that over the next um, next couple of years. Um, I've got a a full-on collaboration duo record with um, Jack Knife Lee under the name Telefish coming out later on this year. Okay, well, that's, and that's that's more of a synth pop. Uh, I mean, I yeah, that's 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 really not the right term for me to use, but um, yeah, it, it does adhere somewhat to a kind of pet shop boys, um, uh, template, uh, in terms of division of duties. You know, this these big, sometimes quite big and grand backing tracks that. Mr. Lee developed and I, you know, written my bit and we've gone back and forth over the top. But I mean, I'm, 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 I am just the the, 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 the singing lyricist, really. Yes. And, that, and that's, that's quite nice for a change. And just, I mean, just kind of curious, because I did an interview with this guy, mean, yeah, recently. Um, you know, on one of your first solo albums, you did a track called Unbroken Ones, which was the single. You kind of worked yeah. with... Um, Mark Saunders. That was the only track yeah. on the album you worked with a, a producer because I think you produced the rest of it. Why? What was the the reasoning for for working with and getting Mark in for that particular song? 
Well, we we had intended doing a whole Fatima Mansions album with Mark, and we got on great. And I I found him found him great to work with. Um, but the record label wouldn't go for it, and things got extremely fractious afterwards with the record label. Um, and it was just contractual limbo that went on for years. Um, the track that came out of that session that I felt stood alone best was was Unbroken Ones. Um, the the other two that we did with Mark were more in a typical Fatima Mansions vein. So Unbroken Ones is basically just me and him and Nick Bunker on some electric guitar. So um, Nick Nick had been the keyboard player in the mansions before. He was he was on Viva Dead Ponies. Um, yeah, th- 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 I mean that was it basically. Uh, I I mean the the reason I wanted to work with Mark was uh, you know I was very inspired by the um, Tricky's Maxine Key as so many of us were you know, uh, which Mark. Mark co-produced with Tricky, you know. Yes, yes, he told me that story. It's amazing. Well, I did. Um, I did. So I think I did three one-hour interviews with Mark about his life in music. So it was just quite boggling, really, and and very funny because I mean the characters he worked with, and um, it's just kind of hilarious. I mean, it, it makes an amazing story. So that's why that went on for quite a while. But he was just, you know, because he told me, you know, how he got into music and his early band, and then he worked with people. He did David Bowie and Mick Jagger doing Dancing in the Street. You know, that was his kind of moment. And then he got into working with people like The Cure. And and uh, like you said, it was working with Tricky that he, um, yes, had a moment. And then Cindy Lauper and then went to America and worked with various other mega stars, which obviously comes with a... Should come with a health warning, really. So um, it's good. Yeah. yeah. So, so he, he was just, <laughs> it was just like, yes, that was quite something, really. Yeah. So I was just curious when I saw his name because because there are producers that you just think, oh yes, they have a certain, they have a style, don't they? And and I just wonder what that process was when you you sort of started working together because obviously, and the, the interesting thing with producers is that often a bit like photographers, I've realised in the music world anyway, is that they have a they have often about a five year period where you know that's there you know they're there like whether it was mickey most in the say the 70s or trevor horn a bit in the 80s and was it tim palmer as well who seemed to have a bit of a moment yeah and then and then then suddenly it's like something happens and they kind of drop off but some don't you know obviously but uh glenn glenn johns he he seems to have been through the decades but some people do have a a sound for that moment and then you just think "Mm, that does sound a little bit dated now i just wondered if you ever listen to you some of your sort of material and thinking yeah if we could reproduce um you know re-engineer it or produce it again we could just slightly tweak it i just wondered if if that ever comes into your mind well i think if the mansions stuff ever manages to come out again i would want to remaster just remaster um because there's a real shrill brightness to it that i think isn't really necessary um and to be fair to mainly Raf Jezer, but the the other people that we recorded with um I don't think uh, it was present on, on on the actual recordings. I think it was just something that got got cranked to the max when we were mastering subsequently. So but no, I mean I think I, I, I'm really not a big one for 
for thinking, oh God, I wish we hadn't used the DX7 or whatever, you know, whatever 1980s kind of kit, like putting the guitar through a Rockman, you know, the little cassette machine sized preamp thing that the guy from the, the band Boston invented. <laughs> um, Tom Schultz. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, it's if, if the music, the music should be strong enough to stand up to that. And I, there are, and, and when it comes to my own music, I, I really don't have a sufficient distance, even, you know, even two thirds of a lifetime away. I still I still don't. Um, and there are some things that I like that are extremely of their time, but that come through. And the one I always think of is um, Prefab Sprout, Steve McQueen. I mean, you, you, you could scarcely have an album that has more more 80s keyboards certainly about it and, and maybe the some of the treatments of the guitar drums yeah the drums drums are a bit more timeless on it but nevertheless um it has a, a, a an, an 80s sheen to it but it's a fucking brilliant record and i mean it just you know isn't gonna i i mean i think if anything it would suffer were somebody to go and treat everything so that it sounded less of those times you know yes it's interesting because 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 during the that period you know bowie had two albums i think it was um tonight and never let me down and they i think some of those tracks a couple of years ago ago got remixed and remastered and taken quite a lot of that kind of 80s sound off and it did um yeah quality and whatever and um it does sound a lot different you know the songs themselves are like oh yeah actually they were quite good songs but it just had that Slight shrill, and I know everyone loves talk talk, but I do find it does sound a bit like blimey. It's it does always remind me of that tampon advert, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know the one where they're playing football on the beach, and it's my it's, life. It, but, 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 but wasn't that Doctor Alban's? It, it's my life. Yeah. I don't know, but it's like I should. Yeah, I shouldn't yeah, say. No, yeah, but but nevertheless, yeah. I mean, it's the same era. Yeah, yeah. It has that but, same. But it's quite interesting because that Prefab album, I thought, I, you know, I have to confess, I never really listened to Side too much, even, and I keep thinking I should go and listen to it because Side One was such a, it was just a classic, wasn't it? And that's it, it's jam packed, yeah. It yeah. is. It's got everything, and I don't know because in the, those days you had vinyl records, and often flicking it over to Side Two was quite a psychological moment. It's like you, you know, sometimes you felt a bit stuck because you just kept wanting to play, you know, in your comfort zone, wasn't it? So, I'm not so familiar with Side. Too. Oh my God. Um, I, I, I strongly recommend it actually oh, well. it, 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 it is quite the, the pacing is quite different and everything but it's but it's but it's really good yes but um on that point i know all but prefab sprout fans always just go on about the album before because i think they just you know real diehards and i slight like, again it's like i don't know that so well as side one from steve mcqueen which i do know very well so um yes but that's um just one of those things isn't it really i think fans always you know real you know diehard fans always like the first album when it's all a bit more obscure and as someone once said you know before the band managed to uh, learn how to play their instruments so um i don't know it's just one upmanship really isn't it as the fan so um yeah yeah i mean there are many enigmas about um about prefab spro i mean you know patty is a and, and always was a much more accomplished guitar player than people commonly realized i mean not that anybody thought he was incompetent for one second but 
Um, yes, I mean there, there is something quite special that that, um, that he does, and and the, the his ideas about harmony. I think some of them had their roots in that in his way of playing the guitar. Um, so that, yeah, it did largely kind of drift away after Swoon. Yeah, it did. That's the one. Yeah, Swoon. So with um, with this kind of new album that's coming out you work a lot with luke haynes as well don't you he appears yeah luke plays various things bass and synth and some effects guitars and things like that yeah yes because uh, you've worked you you sort of you first got a collaboration with him which was quite well, it's nearly 10 years ago now isn't it so when did you two sort of sort of bump into each other uh well we met through andrew muller um who was a mutual friend and uh, yeah, we just got talking about David Crosby. <laughs> just went from there. Uh, I think the you know mutual interest in the comedic side of uh, the counterculture and uh, the shall we say less reputable end of politics and some other things like that. Yes. Uh, so the North East Scrolls was a very detailed examination of, of just those those things, really. Um, yes, but it's quite yeah. You know, that's just because because he's quite a maverick kind of um, singer songwriter and done some quite some um, extreme and exciting things. I do I do remember sort of interviewing him and him sort of mentioning that he'd managed to have an accident, broke both legs or both ankles. And it was almost like he said that was a bit of an extreme way to uh, stop doing what you were doing because you kind of subconsciously felt like you needed to have a bit of a break. But he thought that was a, probably a bit of an extreme way to go about, you know, having a life-changing moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I didn't know him back in those days, but certainly the picture he paints of it is of someone who was extremely strong-willed. Yes, and... Um, I I, th- I think he you know he's, he's he still is he has a, a very strong determination about the creative work that he does and that's quite inspiring to be around. So with yeah. a, I mean with what's what what I found curious about sort of doing this show is that a lot of the the, the bands who were around during the eighties obviously you know he still 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 made a few more records after that kind of I suppose initial five year period which you know most people you know. I didn't realise at the time, you know, have that kind of really intense moment of getting together, you know, they form a band, they have that single. And in, in that kind of 80s indie world, you know, John Peel gives it a play, which gives everyone a big lift. Then the John Peel session, that kind of leads then to, you know, like the album and then the tours around the country. And then the sec- tricky second album and more touring by then, bands are normally trying to kill each other. And the third album, things are going terribly badly. But then, you know, and you probably noticed that a lot of those people, they've, you know, sort of come out with the odd album. But recently, in the last three to four years, everybody seems to be releasing records. And, and then, you know, I don't know if you saw it last night, The Nightingales, Rob Lloyd, the film that came out about, you know, King Rocker, about Robert's yeah. life in music. So have you been sort of also aware of, of this kind of pattern that, that, that people you probably ignored at the time, but, you know, you've all sort of survived the music kind of industry in whatever way, um, are still sort of chugging away, playing and wanting to record and putting together a new album. I just wondered if you were sort of looking around thinking, oh, right, they've got a new album now. 
And it can be can be encouraging to see that you know the, the, there is an audience that 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 has memory and that does uh, still want to hear what you might be doing. Um, but my interests, I think, are a bit broader. At least I flatter myself, anyway, that they are. In that I, especially in the nineties, when I was essentially barred out of doing anything for a few years, um, I determined that I was going to find other ways of focusing on the things I most like to do in music, and the, the biggest one of those is singing. You know, I mean. I'm always happy to sing with other people or just do any kind of collaboration or help out that, that gets me singing because it's physically, I find it, I find it physically and emotionally therapeutic, you know, and that was always more of a dominant thing for me than wanting to be a pop star. And I'm not really making a value judgment about it because I know how powerful all that pop star stuff is and how much easier it can render a person's life. And I'm not talking about riches necessarily here, but it can definitely make it easier to sustain the things that you want to do. Um, so obviously someone like Rob Lloyd, you have to, you know, you can't not respect. And it's just always been a lot more common for artists in America, music artists in America, to do this because live work there is seen much differently. It, it's, it isn't, oh, oh, God, not them again. It's, it's, it's more, oh, oh, they're coming to town. Um, I remember when they played the arena and now they're only playing in the club, but let's go see them, you know. Yeah. Um, whereas here, it's a more densely populated country, and and I, I mean by here I mean the whole Western Europe really, except with the possible exception of Germany. Um, but it's much more a case of oh yeah okay well mm, oh, no I don't think so, um, <clears throat> and you kind of get your moment and and then it becomes a struggle. Uh, so it's it's nice to see that at least in my lifetime, that that tendency has been reversed a little bit. But you don't want to go thinking that it's uh, <laughs> any kind of a lasting lease on life. I was watching a movie last week, a documentary, called, uh, which is made by someone I know, but I hadn't seen it before, called Very Extremely Dangerous. And it's about this Memphis-based... Um, I, I, I think we would have to call him a psychopath named Jerry McGill, who uh, is a, a vocalist. Sometimes he was the uh, head of security on the road for Waylon Jennings. Uh, also a bank robber, an inveterate uh, Class A drug user and someone who has spent quite a bit of time in jail. And he's um, near the end of his life and uh, he gets together with some of the original um, people from Memphis who he had worked with. Now, he would have known 
say, you know, Jim Dickinson, you know, the producer and musician Jim Dickinson, yeah. who worked a lot with Alex Childs and played piano on the Stones, Wild Horses and so on. Um, Jim's sons from the North Mississippi All-Stars were backing him and there was a bunch of older musicians as well. And they were recording at Sam Phillips' recording, uh, not Son, but the, the one that Phillips started afterwards. And uh, they're recording, you know, they're doing it in there. And someone asks the producer, who is this old Memphis hand, his name didn't ring any bells with me, but he was clearly a very experienced guy. And he just looked at the, he looked at the interviewer and says, well, you know, all these people, all these guys come to me and they say, you know, I've just retired from my job. I want to get back into the music industry. And I just look at them and I say, well, you had your chance. <laughs> you know, so... I guess what I'm saying is, is, is that there is a kind of a, a a pit of ridiculousness that lurks at all of our feet if we don't maintain some self-awareness. And I'm not levelling that accusation at anybody else. Um, but for me, it's quite an important thing to keep in mind to, to know the limitations of your situation if you can. Does that does that make you then appreciate what you're doing now much more rather than taking it for granted? Uh, yes, I believe it does. Yeah, a day in the studio now for me never would be wasted on doing something whimsical like some of the some B sides I've done over the years and you know some bubonique material. Uh, I would not spend as a day of studio time just amusing myself without a clear purpose in mind because it is just good to be able to do it at all yes i mean because because it's kind of interesting because your your sort of career really fits not quite but quite close to, to to the different decades doesn't it really you have your micro disney decade then you have your fatima mansions decade and then your kind of the solo kind of decades really isn't it now so do you do you also sort of go oh yes that's what i was doing in my 80s oh that's the 90s period oh now this is the o years and onwards do you know do you, does that sort of when you have to make sense of what's happened in your life does that and you and we start processing stuff as we get slightly older because things happen and we have to deal with stuff. Does that kind of make it feel a little bit easier to kind of so let go? I suppose that's the term. You know, sometimes one still kind of feels a bit uptight about stuff, and then you process it. Time passes, and then you go, okay, I can slightly let. I can be more relaxed about that now. But it's only taken me twenty years. But um, I just wondered when you sort of gaze over your back catalogue and all the work that you've done and been involved with i tend to grade things according to oh no not grade but to kind of the timeline that's in my head it has probably a lot more to do with personal life events than it does the music i think um decades don't always lend themselves to this because the mansions really started in 88 and there was a certain amount of doing things in a in an eighties way, uh, because the technology hadn't really galloped along in the way that it did later. Uh, I suppose I do derive a satisfaction from knowing that there are various eras that 
can be drawn on. But mainly just because there are a lot of songs that 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 does feel good. Yes. If I need, you know, if I need to do shows, I've got a, a decent enough size self self written or co written catalog to draw on. Yes. Uh, at least from most types of presentation, you know. Have you ever been? Because I know David Bowie often mentioned writing musicals, and obviously. Some of your lyrics and vocal lends itself very much to sort of the, the musical theatre of a genre. Have you sort of ever thought, actually, I might have a go at writing a musical? That might be a really terrible idea from me to say, but you might go, no way. But I just wondered because it's kind of, it's quite interesting, you know, the listening to, you know, a lot of your sort of more recent stuff, thinking, oh, yeah, that does sound almost like a, mu- a kind of potential of kind of being a musical and because of the quite um, vivid kind of uh, images that you paint, I just wondered if you'd ever thought, God, I could really sort of get myself into a project like that for three years. I'm not sure that I have the formal chops, you know, as a writer of either words or music to go the whole hog. Something was mooted a couple of years ago that might still happen. Um, essentially a film project based on a novel. I can't be any more specific than that, but I did the Flannery's Mounted Head that became the Faubourg album in the, in the, in the 2000s which was a little bit like the kind of time sink you mentioned. There were a lot of time elapsed with me focusing on just that piece of work, first for the live performance and then to to make an album of it. And I think the album suffered a bit from trying too hard to just be a record of a live performance. I don't think I could knuckle down to something just as a document anymore. I've just got a more of a, at least at the moment, anyway, more of a convicted intention when it comes to to making making you know recordings in general and i i think maybe as part of a team i could but i i couldn't really see myself knuckling down for that huge amount of time just on my own but at the same time, it is nice to work on something where the impetus is not just coming from your personal, uh, coming directly from your personal emotions or experiences. And because paradoxically, taking some someone else's work as a as a base template can bring out emotional content from you in ways you weren't expecting. And that's something that I have experienced to some extent. Um, I spent quite a long time in 2019 immersed in the Bertolt Brecht um, uh, work uh, for a multi-artist project I was involved in in Dublin and uh, I was one of the vocalists but I, I was also charged with researching the poetry uh, that, that was uh, spoken in between the musical things 
And it reminded me just how much I love that work, you know, whether it's the music of Kurt Weill or Hans Eisler or Paul Dessau. And there's a level of, of sophistication there that I, I, I don't really match, but it's very inspiring for me to be around it. Mm. What I, think, um, I was just going to say, yeah. I, a couple of years ago, which is probably <laughs> not a couple, probably more, but I went to see, uh, it was Barry Humphreys and Meow Meow doing the work of uh, the Weimar Republic in London. And they, was, yeah. uh, um, they were doing you know, a week of shows because I was also fascinated with that period of music in Germany. And uh, yes, it is quite expressive because they, they aren't, they, they're, they're quite vivid songs, incredibly kind of... Uh, graphic as well they're not sort of like diary entries are they all sort of you know they're, they're quite um and it's also an interesting period in german history as well because obviously this is the rise of nazism as well so you know there was this kind of world that was the 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 cabaret i suppose and and this kind of the three was it three penny opera and and those kind of yeah mac the yeah. life and if you're thinking yeah that's quite dark <laughs> it's extremely dark but i mean the, the evolution of it was fairly complex because it was Brecht was basically commissioned to do a production of john gay's beggar's opera and elizabeth hauptmann who was one of his team um was an english speaker and she had done a translation into german of the beggar's opera and that's really what the whole thing is based on. So it isn't entirely drawn from original sources. And Hauptmann had a lot more to do with it than she was for many years credited with. So that's why it kind of stands apart from a lot of Brecht's other work. But, you know, he wrote, I think, over 20 performed plays and all but something like three, I think, have music in them. So, uh, not you know, it's only maybe only half of it has been translated into English, but uh, the, the, there is an enormous spread there, and he certainly wasn't afraid of, of the of the CD and the and the bare knuckle yes. side side of life. But Threepenny Opera, at the same time, I think is um, more performative in the standard sense than a lot of the other work because you probably know I mean you had the the epic theater idea but I know Meow Meow because she was involved in the show I was in in Dublin and she's a you know she's a very uh a lifelong student I mean as far as I know she's like you know got the academic background and all that that I don't have um so yeah full full respect Yes, well, that was an amazing. They're, they're both of them, and and obviously there was a couple of other musicians who were commissioned to be performing that 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 those shows. It was just extraordinary. I mean, it was, I mean, I only knew a little bit, but you know, it was like an education, sort of hearing the two of them who obviously were so committed and so fascinated with that period. So um, yeah, it was kind of it was kind of amazing. And also, I guess you've worked with Camille O'Sullivan, who's who's another great interpreter of people's songs as well. And she and, is, yeah. And I've seen her live a few times. And again, she has a great stage presence. So people like seeing, you know, Meow Meow and uh, Camille. It must be great to be able to work and collaborate with people like that and and be inspired. 
Yes, definitely. Uh, humbling to some, <laughs> in, in a number of ways. Um, I mean, well, to talk about Camille for a minute, you know, she, she's someone who has really worked at being a performer principally of uh, theatrical type material, you know, and I don't really count myself as being in that league. Uh, but there is a, there is some crossover, certainly. Yes, well, I know, but she's often done the work as Nick Cave and Leonard Cohen and David Bowie. Um, yeah, and 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 Brecht and Brel, you know. I mean, it's yeah, it's quite a quite a spread. I mean, she 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 acts also, of course. Yes. But, um, yeah, I I saw her in a production in London a couple of years ago, which was before uh, um, it was a a, a, a theatre piece that was mainly based on um, the the plot was Wojciech, uh but it had the songs from the from Schubert's Winterreise um, spread through it. So it was like, you know, in, in English. Uh, it was a really demanding thing to do, but she was really terrific in it, you know, both as an actress and, and, and as a singer. I, I can't act with, with a no. light. <laughs> it's quite, quite daunting, really. But yeah, so you've got two projects, because your decade, I mean, you had the reunion with Micro Disney, didn't you, as about three years, probably now it's four years ago, which is time just flies. So does this feel like now that you're, you know, 2021 and hopefully beyond, you know, you're sort of, um, yes, got sort of more material sort of coming out and you're sort of rather than sort of going with the past, sort of looking at the future a bit more now for the next decade? Well, I wouldn't ever assume there's another decade. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's the main thing. I yeah. want to represent my time of life uh, for better or worse. And to that end, yes, I, I, I am focused on producing new material uh the, the the old scariness of trying to follow up something that's been well received remains and I'm, I'm determined not to fall into old habits of being daunted into immobility by that particular strand of reality um so i'm yeah working on new material and there will be more than one Telefiche album. Yeah. Also, so uh, uh, I yeah I do want to maximise my 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 creative output for whatever time I have. Yeah. Does the, the does the reception of your material does that fill you with dread? It probably should, but. Somehow, at the moment, I'm pretty even-headed about it, I think. Now, that said, I have yet to read something that kind of floors me in its, you know, criticism uh, or its critical uh, <laughs> opposition to what I'm doing. But I don't hang on it 
anymore in the way that may, that I used to. At least I hope so, because in my twenties, you know, it was just complete waste of energy, really, getting all hung up about, you know, who the reviewer was going to be and oh, what what are they likely to do, and then you know how much space did it get, and you know was that criticism fair or not, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I like to think, at least, that I'm a bit more relaxed about that kind of thing now. Yes, well, with two albums and working with Jack Life Lee, which is yeah, his CV is quite phenomenal, isn't it? I mean, it's like, you know, he he he's been busy, hasn't he? He certainly has. Yeah, he has. <laughs> he has a great deal of energy and is unflaggingly enthusiastic about what he does which is a lesson to me because he does not spend time brooding and, uh, you know, worrying about what he's going to do next. He he gets ideas and he gets on and does them. And that has obviously made him valuable to other artists as well as in his own work. So, that, yes. I was, I was going to say, how does that, you know, work with you, you know, putting an album together you know I mean obviously you probably don't sort of live in the same city so is it the case that you're just kind of pinging files to each other and then sort of thinking Christ he, he wants me to do this in the in the next week and um oh god I better not just go and wash the windows now I better get on with it it, it does that you know does that kind of put you into a slightly different emotional mindset um we were definitely we definitely, yeah. Well, we we had to do things the, the 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 remote way, and I think even without the pandemic, that would have been the case, because of that enormous di- distance. Um, when something as fully formed as the things he was sending me lands in your inbox, yeah, you do feel okay. Gosh, better drop everything and at least get a draft of this together. And, of course, he's super quick at responding to your draft. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he basically, you know, if it indicates something about the overall structure of the track, he'll have that changed in a matter, matter of half a day. And within a day, he will have the, the, the next iteration of it in your inbox. So, you know, you've got to be, got to be on point. Yes. Um, but it, it's a bit like I was saying about the, you know, using other other people's fiction or whatever as, as, as a, a base template. It's a similar thing. You just kind of forget about your a lot of your normal hang-ups and, you know, try to grasp something that's actually going to work uh, yes. in terms of pleasing the listener, you know. Well, it's interesting. I was, just kind of, I, I was listening to an interview with is it Justin Towns Earl, Steve Earl's son, and he was just oh, yeah. sort of talking about you can't put, you can't write diary entries, you know, you can't be, you can't call yourself a singer, songwriter if you, if you just do diary entries. So I, I guess this is what it's like when you're, when you're up against it, having to sort of quickly fear, find the narrative or find the sort of, the words to go with it. It's, it's not going to, you're going to be emotionally removed from what you're probably feeling or thinking about to thinking what how is how is this going to sound well it's a bit of a there is a paradox there i think which is that yes absolutely nobody gets to sustain a, a lengthy body of work 
by just being wholly confessional. But at the same time, you have to find a route into the thing you're, I keep using that word confecting, but I, I think, I think it, it, it's, it's a bit irreducible for me at the moment. Uh, I, I think if, like Justin Tons Earl, you're, you're, you're fabricating, that's probably the wrong word, but if you, yes, you have a scenario and you're going to write about it, I think you do need to find your own way into it at the same time. It needs to, it needs to provoke that one thing that only you can produce there uh, that gives the work your signature and that gives you the means to just continue so you're not just like stuck on line number three, you know. Yes. Uh, you know, to let you move actually through the whole thing. And that's the enigma, really. Uh, I think it pro possibly didn't exist as much when we're talking about people like Cole Porter or... Um, uh, or even the the likes of Holland Wolf, when people were we were either within a tradition or their 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 craft, their artifice was so sophisticated that they could just turn on the tap, and and that one relatively simple idea, they had the inspiration necessary to to turn that into an entire three verse um, song. Uh, those are special people. Um, but then when you look at someone like Bob Dylan, he's been on both sides of the fence. He's been someone who can just like free associate and just come up with a whole lot. You know, I'm thinking of the basement tapes where he used to sit upstairs in big pink typing. And then they would just go into the basement and he would just like start strumming and singing and the band would have to to muck, to muck in with him, and that's, you know, on the second or third take, that's what's on those tapes. But in I notice in recent years that he's much more working from templates that were already laid down, whether they're blues songs that he's written, new lyrics too, or they're uh, allegedly, at least, things that he has wholesale cribbed from very unlikely third-party sources that have nothing at all to do with what he what he's trying to do creatively but they, they give him they give him a structure into which to push his uh his ideas I, I don't think there is a right way and a wrong way to to go about this as long as you don't don't just steal someone else's work or fail to give credit to the tradition that you're you're uh, aligning yourself with yes Absolutely. Yes, this is good. Because just last, I mean, you know, with, with your background, was were you quite influenced by folk music or more blues when you were sort of, you know, your formative years? I think folk music, uh, yeah, definitely folk music, not not blues. I, I only really discovered blues in my in my 20s because the vocabulary became, the musical vocabulary had been a bit overused by the time I came on the scene and I was certainly guilty of being overly dismissive of the whole, of the whole endeavor when I was in my teens and twenties, but early twenties. So yeah, folk music, I think the strangeness that you would find in even the most apparently innocuous Irish folk songs. And I'm thinking of things like when Planksty did the Raggle Taggle Gypsy, uh, 
and I mean, I, I know a lot more about the lineage of that song now and the fact that it wasn't really, you know, as far as anybody knows, it wasn't originally Irish, but a lot of the songs that came out of the early 70s continuation of the folk revival in Ireland, thanks to uh, Paul Brady, Andy Irvine, Christy Moore solo. There's a great deal of strangeness there. The Well Below the Valley, you know, extraordinary song. And it's become the interpretation that most people give to it, I suppose, is that it's about the sexual exploitation and general mistreatment of, of young women. And that may well be what's there, but there is, a, there is always this edge of the uncanny and the unknown there, which I really treasure. And I feel I feel lucky to have grown up with that. Um, whether there remains much evidence of it in the work that I've done myself, I mean, I, I can't really say, but it's certainly very important to me. And it's great that in recent years there are younger Irish artists who are mining that scene in new ways. I'm thinking of Lancome and uh, Rady Pete from Lancome and the solo work she does and some of the other members of that band as well, you know, taking songs like The Wild Rover, which could not be a more annoying Irish pub song in its usual incarnation, but taking it back to something that's more elemental, which is probably where it started. I mean, you know, a lot of these songs are either about death or venereal disease or some combination of the two. And that's where they've squarely <laughs> squarely put the world rover now. Yes. Well, I did see, I remember, it was, is it Cathy Jordan who was in Dervish? Seeing oh, yeah. them play. And again, she, you know, she's a phenomenal performer and um, interpretations of those kind of, you know, pretty well-known songs, really, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of interesting. And you mentioned Christy Moore, because I remember that album, Ride On, there were several songs that had been written by, is it Bobby Sands from the, yeah. um, which was yeah. quite, um, Back Home in Derry was one of them, I remember. So, yes, it's kind of, um, yeah, interesting, though, those kind of folk traditions from the from, from Ireland. So um, that must be kind of in your DNA. Not really, because I, I'm... I'm such musical influence as there was in my family is not really so much about that. My, um, I have an aunt and uncle on, on my mother's side who were both excellent singers and my uncle continues to sing. And I mean, he would sing folkish songs, but he's more of a lyric tenor, classical repertoire, and my aunt also. And for several generations, we were English speakers and that cuts a number of links. Um, so it's more, it's, it's more a case of just what you heard on the radio. We didn't have a record player in the house and there was only one radio station. And I remember when the Planksty album came out in 1973, it was like this, you know, you, you, you couldn't switch on the radio without hearing it. And, um, Yeah, it was. It was. So there wasn't much pop culture around, really. I, I, that, that, that's that's what it com, comes down to. This was the accessible, the accessible musical culture. Yeah. I, I mean, I wasn't long in kind of 
pushing out of that and and even rejecting it in in ways for for a number of years um when i started you know bowie and on into into neil young and dylan and that kind of thing and those became my main eye openers or ear ear brain openers yes um but obviously Dylan's work owes a lot to songs that he heard the Clancy Brothers playing in the late 50s or, or the early 60s in Greenwich Village. And in fact, there were some things that he just stole wholesale from, <laughs> from them in the best way possible. Um, yes. That's, yeah. Well, I just, yeah. And I, were, were, just lastly, I mean, were people like kind of Thin Lizzy on your radar as well at that stage, you know, and, and say the Ramones, did they start to sort of make a kind of inroads into your DNA? Uh, Thin Lizzy I always liked, um, but I didn't own any of the records. Um, uh, the Ramones I just loved from the word go. There was somebody in my class in school who, who bought it, about the first Ramones album and he hated it so much. I think he either gave it to me or he sold it to me for like some tiny amount of money. Um, yeah, I, I I could really relate to that because it was so ridiculous. You know, I mean, but I've been listening to things like the Blue Oyster Cult, which I thought was sort of related because of Patti Smith and CBGBs and all that. And this was something completely, completely otherwise. Uh, yeah, punk, punk was something something that felt like it had to happen. It was just the logical conclusion of the things I was interested in, you know, the New York Dolls and the uh, Patti Smith group and the Stooges. Just way too many Nick Kent articles, really. <laughs> God, he's got a new book, actually, this coming week, actually, Nick Kent. Um, yeah, Nick's, Nick's novel, yeah. Yes, Nick's novel. Yes, I need to, um, yes, arrange an interview with him. Yes, anyway. Yeah, he, he, he said some very amusing things about Vince Taylor in, 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 in one of the things, I, in a brief interview I saw with him to promote the novel. Um, he just described the arc of Vince Taylor's life, uh, possibly in the, not in the most compassionate way, but I, I am quite fascinated with Vince Taylor. Yeah, well, actually, on that point, I always remember hearing, I think, Vince Taylor, there was, it was one of those BBC, it could be the World Service witness about Vince Taylor, and they talked to his son, because obviously David Bowie, you know, was quite um, influenced by because that's when oh, he, because he decided he was Jesus, didn't he, not Bowie, Vince he Taylor, and so I had a map to, to all these kind of... Um, spaceships or sort of underground places that you could go to he'd slightly lost it hadn't he and uh, <laughs> it, was like, he did, yeah. it was a fascinating one you know obviously it was when the clash did brand new cadillac and he thought oh that's a great song so, oh yeah they didn't write it did they it was vince it's like blimey i can see why they loved it you know because it was such a classic song but yeah 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 it's a good one yes dear old vince taylor Yes. Well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for this. And when I um, put it out, I, yeah. I can, um, I'll send you a link and then you can always use it elsewhere if you um, want to. But That'd be great, please, yeah. yeah. I will, OK. But thank you ever so much and good luck for the year. And uh, yes, and I'll look forward to hearing the rest of the album. I've just heard the two singles. So, so far, so good. This has been ex excellent. But yeah, hopefully um, 
God, I know, three years ago. That's gone quick, hasn't it? Anyway, it look. It certainly has, yeah. Well, maybe we still be having these conversations in the future. <laughs> yes, I know. We survived the 80s. It, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we look back at the 80s and, and think, oh, that's quite good. But actually, it's like, no, at the time, it was quite grim, really. You know, we had, Yeah, it really was. It, it went yeah. from bad to worse. And then, you know, kind of Chernobyl as well. So anyway, bloody hell. Right. OK, look, have a great evening. And thanks a lot for your time. You too, David. Great to chat. Take Thanks care. a lot. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was me in conversation with Cathal Coughlin um, talking about his new solo work as well as various other bits and pieces. Um, like I said, the album is going to be coming out March 2021, hopefully. Sometimes these, sometimes these things get put back a week or two, but anyway, I'm sure you'll be able to locate it. Check it out. It sounds brilliant. This, though, has been David Eastall, The CD6 Show. If you want to contact me, which you can keep it positive though um it is you can do it on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show and also all these interviews have been archived on spotify itunes podbean check them out if you're so interested in indie pop or just the 80s scene really um and there's lots on david bowie so uh, do check them out as well but um i'm gonna go have a great week stay safe